Welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive uh, Podcast. Today, my guest is Jeff Geipel. Jeff is the founder and managing director of the Mining Shared Value Initiative at the Engineers Without Borders in Canada. This initiative works to improve the development impacts of mineral extraction in host countries through increased local procurement by the global mining industry. Through this work, Jeff is also a community manager for the World Bank's extractive-led local economic diversification community of practice. Actually, Jeff was one of my very first guests on the Sheila Hama Extractive Podcast. So Jeff, welcome once again, and thank you for your time. Thanks, happy to be here. That's lovely. So I thought, given your experience, knowledge, and interest in local content policies, that uh, as we discuss this notion of resource nationalism, we would focus on the local content aspect of that policy. So um, local content policies are perceived as one of the hallmarks of resource nationalism. How do you rationalize your view and support for uh, local content policies in the face of uh, investor sentiments towards resource nationalism? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I, I would say to start, I'm not an advocate of local content policies uh, across the board. I, I'm an advocate for for good and, and well consul consulted with industry local content policies that, that drive competitive suppliers and support the long-term picture. So I think the one mistake is to assume that all local content policies are the same and they will all be viewed the same by, by industry. Um, as a general point though, I would say that the empirical evidence is in that we need some kind of nudge for local content. If it is only about making a, a good, you know, ease of business uh, setting and, 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 you know, low taxes, we, we have found that that does not lead to companies necessarily buying local um buying locally from local suppliers unless there is a nudge. And that's because companies are international and they already have pre-existing supply chains and, and preferred suppliers. So it's only natural that they will, you know, the, the path dependency will lead them to, to continue to buy from international suppliers. So I, I do believe we need some kind of nudge in order to, to make local procurement happen. Um, it's just a question of what that nudge is. And so I would say, you know, we, we need good local content policies, but not just any local content policies. Okay, so perhaps, uh, you know, we should uh, look at that a little more in detail mm -hmm. then. So I think you are right to say there's local content policies and then there's local content policies. In your view then, what makes a local content policy uh, good or uh, appropriate? in a way that translates into what you call a nudge for uh, investors? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, you need to have the data is, is probably the most important foundation. What, what we have found is that a lot of local content policies have been in, implemented by governments who don't understand the current status of, of local procurement and, and local hiring, for example. And so when they make a target, um, you know, for example, that 70% of goods must be manufactured in, in, in the country within five years. Um, if, if, the, if the numbers aren't actually 70, close to 70%, I mean, that doesn't make any sense. So what, what I would say is to make good 
good local content policy, you need a really in-depth understanding of the current state of play. Um, and then make, if you do use targets, and I'm not against all targets, I'm, I'm generally I'm worried about them because they are made poorly. But if, if you are going to use a target, make that target realistic and say, let's say the current level of procurement is 45%, maybe make it 47% in two years. I mean, that's the kind of process you, you should be doing. And I guess the second point is we need supply side measures to support any demand side. So we can't just put requirements on mining companies to buy locally. We need to have the governments provide supplier support in terms of capacity building programs, uh, working on common standards for, for products and, and you know, things like health and safety. And then um, uh, also to ensure there's finance, because if the, you can have all the requirements to buy locally in the world, if there's no finance available for local firms, it won't make much of a difference. So I think that's, you know, those are two, I, I guess, broad suggestions I would make. Hmm. So you make a, an important point, which is that uh, local content policies, uh, if you just think of the multinational footprint of large mining companies is in some cases counterintuitive to the logic of economies of scale that they uh, derive from centralized large procurement structures. And, and that, you know, with that, if, if you want them to depart from that uh, traditional corporate practice, there has to be perception of value. Uh, but, and so I wanted to ask, I mean, is it, uh, realistic in the circumstances to expect that a, a mere change in policy is sufficient for multinationals to change the way they do business. And for that matter, given that uh, multinationals think of resource nationalism as uh, counter their interest and therefore not likely to invest, how realistic are we in pushing local content uh, and what are the risks that by doing so we might uh, diminish the level of foreign direct investment in the process? Because after all, multinationals have a choice to or not to come into these jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I do think somewhat it, it's the, the fear of, of companies um, exiting markets over you know, individual regulations being added is a little bit overblown. And I, I used the example of um, there, there's certainly a lot of there's certainly a lot of companies who have been saying they're going to leave a certain country for, for you know, almost a decade now and never do. So I, I would say um, if you already have a mining sector established and companies have already invested, there's definitely um, it's much more difficult for companies to leave. And I think if you, again, put in reasonable re regulations, they won't leave. I, I do think you make a good point though, that if it comes to future investment, that is different. And if you are, for example, a new, a new producing country, a country that doesn't have much mining, if you do re regulations that are, are seen as problematic, you, it, it's gonna be very difficult to, to attract investment. So I, I would be very worried about that. But again, I, I would just say, if you can demonstrate that the regulations will be reasonable, you know most mining companies that that pick that spend on procurement these these issues it, it's part of a much larger suite of, of decisions as to why you would invest in a country. So I, I don't think you should necessarily write up all regulations even in a country where you are new and you are trying to seek investment. Um, the key is to to make you know reasonable investment and you know just just to use an example, certainly in 
in the case of of uh, China, I mean, China always has regulations on on every sector, which everyone says would deter investment, and you know you can't you can't do this, and companies won't invest. Well, companies keep investing in China just because there's a big market there. So again, it, it depends on the leverage that that, that individual countries have, um, and and using it. I think the key word there is is uh, twofold. The first is you know knowing the environment, as you said earlier, you can't take a, a you know a decision on a policy without first investigating the first the external environment, but also yours, and then positioning yourself to, if you wish, uh, capitalize on your strengths. But I think the, the notion of understanding your leverage and then using it is, is essential because my sense, uh, Jeff, is that local content policies and other resource nationalistic tendencies tend to be almost like a fashionable trend mm -hmm. that you know countries then jump the bandwagon without examining their unique circumstances and saying, one, do we think this is the right policy here and now? And secondly, if it is, you know, how are we going to structure it? I mean, what is your observation? Is there much thinking around the unique circumstances of the individual countries? Or do you find that these policies tend to be merely generic? I, I do fear that a lot of them are quite generic and that that is a big problem and why some of them have come up with regulations which are, are fairly problematic. Um, again, we don't have the data in most of these companies, uh, countries. Most countries do not understand the current level of local procurement and local hiring, for example. And so virtually any regulation they make that doesn't have that as a basis in terms of the knowledge um, is, is likely to be off, shall we say. Um, well, I know we'll, we'll talk later about the experience in Canada. One advantage of the community development agreement model which is used for local procurement in places like Canada and Australia is that it is necessarily tailored to the local community. It's an agreement between one mining company and one community, not across the entire government and not across the entire sector. And so that allows uh, necessarily you know, more consultation, more data specific to the individual situation, um, which is why I think in a lot of ways, those kind of uh, agreement-based regulations, if you want to call them, ha have worked a lot better. So, yeah, I, I, I agree 100%. You know, we need significantly more more consultation. We need to have more analysis before we make the regulations. Um, and I think that is one of the issues we're, we're facing in terms of problematic regulations coming out of, of uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. The, the challenge, of course, that governments face, Jeff, is that, of course, they have to balance the interests and expectations of different uh, stakeholders, uh, communities, the elites, and then investors. I mean, as a starting point, might it not be better for governments to have consultations so that before uh, formulating this policy, at least the views of these voices are in the room, rather than design the policies, put them in the public domain and generate potential, uh, you know, disagreements and tension. Uh, I mean, what is the appropriate uh, starting point? I, I mean, I 100% agree. We need to have much more consultation and more research ahead of time. I, I do agree that, you know, making verbose announcements uh, about local content 
before you even even done that work, I think is problematic and will only put industry um, on their back heels. So I, I, I think you, you do need to have a consultation process with the industry, with suppliers, with supplier organizations like chambers of commerce. Um, of course, you know, you have to accept that the you know, most mining companies are going to oppose any kind of local content regulation just, you know, by default. So you have to factor that in a little bit in terms of that consultation process, but you, you, of course, you have to get the, the right concerns of industry um, on paper ahead of time before drafting things. So I, I would say that, you know, a, a very long process of, of understanding the current, you know, manufacturing capabilities and service provision capabilities, understanding what's currently holding up supplying right now, uh, you know, understanding. I mean, what one point is, sometimes it's not even the local content regulations, which are the problem. Sometimes it's because the price of, of electricity is too high for a supplier to compete with a supplier in a mining or a nearby mining country. So, you know, you need a full understanding of all these pictures and then show to industry that you've done this research and demonstrated that you understand that these are the bottlenecks and why you can't buy locally. And we're trying to solve that. Uh, again, like you just said, if, if you just announce that we're going to drastically increase local content regulations without consultation, it's definitely going to put people on, um, at unease. Yes. Yes, I, I can understand that. Though, of course, others may argue that if you give industry have a chance, they will compromise value. And the idea is really to avoid departing from their own corporate practices as much as possible, because that is for all intents and purposes, their comfort zone. But uh, we have discussed local content policies and resource nationalism within the context of Sub-Sahara. I, I wonder whether we can look beyond uh, the African continent and see what pertains. Uh, and, 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 and so to that end, my question to you is, is resource nationalism a developing world uh, phenomenon or do we have resource nationalistic tendencies in say countries like Canada, which is a huge uh, mining uh, jurisdiction? I mean, I, I think we have a general trend beyond resources uh, across the entire economy of people wanting more uh, benefits locally, uh, you know, in in non-urban centers across many many countries. I mean, if you look at you know Buy America and, and things like Trump and, and Brexit, I mean, this is this is all part of a much larger phenomenon where people want to ensure that benefits stay in in their respective countries and particularly in areas outside of kind of the, the elite, you know, places like like the capital, which is what it fuels some of this this popular sentiment. In terms of natural resources. I mean, yes, absolutely. In Canada and in uh, Australia, we have a huge um, issue, uh, political issue around this. I, I think in Canada, it's much more heavily on Indigenous um, communities wanting more benefits. And you don't hear too much about, for example, the province of British Columbia or Ontario wanting you know, more, more benefits. It, it, it's not the language. It's definitely about Indigenous communities. Um, but in Australia, you actually see, you know, the government of Western Australia, um, you know, co constantly talking about local content as an issue and not just about Indigenous suppliers. So it is a big issue. And then I, I should add that we're seeing it now in other countries. We, you know, we've seen the first time, you know, local content rules emerging in, in Latin America in, in kind of recent years. 
um, you know, Saudi Arabia is now putting quite a lot of mining local content uh, rules in place, I, I, but, but again, very much supported by, by good supply side policies. And then the renewable sector, we're seeing all sorts of, you know, Germany and Poland and other countries putting in local content requirements on things like wind power. So this is a, a, a global phenomenon. Uh, so I, I, th I think people should accept that this is sort of where, where things are going to go. Uh, and it's a matter about making the best policies possible. So what does it tell us, do you think, about um, the potential for less developing countries to succeed in pushing local content in a space in which, to your point, increasingly, for all sorts of reasons, uh, countries are, for lack of a better way, becoming even more inward-looking? Does this augur well? Uh, and if it doesn't, how can less developed countries help themselves succeed in pursuit of local content in the extractive sectors? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think it's all about leverage. I mean, mining companies, the, the, the key difference between mining and oil and gas and you know a clothing factory is that you can move the clothing factory. You can't move the deposit. And I think that's the key, the key difference. And for that reason, I do think that ultimately investors, if there is a great deposit um, or potential to make make money off off uh, off oil and gas or a particular mineral, they will still invest even if there are regulations. If the math adds up, that's the key point. I think that's that's why I think there is still a lot of leeway for developing countries, but again, it's based on the leverage. And so, you know, we always use this example in our work in terms of forward linkages with, with Botswana, because Botswana, of course, said to Anglo-American, we want you to make, you know, beneficiation of diamonds in, in Botswana. But of course, they had the leverage that this is where Anglo-American and De Beers get their, get their diamonds from. Um, but, you know, then you see other countries in, in Africa, for example, um, trying to make gem cutting and policing industries, and, and they just don't have the leverage. They don't have the, the quality of gems or the amount of gems that would ever inspire someone to invest to build a gem processing factory, because you can have a gem processing factory anywhere. Um, so again, I think that's that's the key factor. You know, Regulations can be used, but, but realistically, they can only be used when there is a realistic uh, leverage point um, for, for, that, for that government. And, and again, you see when governments don't understand their own assets and then make regulations based on that that um, lack of knowledge this is where you get into trouble and investors will just flee yeah to be fair uh, uh jeff you make really a very important point and and in my mind it speaks to two things this notion of leverage it speaks first to just country competitiveness but it also speaks to the capacity on a a, a micro level to negotiate with investors based on what your offering is and what mm -hmm. their need is and and the ability to uh if you wish um make sure that what you're asking is compatible to what the other person needs and for that matter what you offer is so critical my observation is that all too often there is a disconnect between uh, what the governments are asking and the true leverage they can bring to bear relative to the mm -hmm. strategic needs of the investor. And so, you know, in the example you've given of Botswana, you're absolutely correct. The cutting and polishing industries 
uh, that were established in, 20, in 2006 in Botswana were really an outcome of uh, DBS recognizing this is the cost of doing business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in, in all ways, it would have been counterintuitive. Uh, but DBS couldn't say the cost is too high because on the balance, continuity of access to Botswana's diamonds would, would justify economically and financially the decision. And, and, and Botswana understood this. Uh, and by contrast, if one looks at, say, Zimbabwe, uh, nearly 6% of the world's production of uh, lithium, it's not evident how Zimbabwe is leveraging that mm-hmm. in dealing with uh, the companies that is doing. And, and I think understanding this is so important when we think of local content uh, policies to say, you know, I have the capacity to impact your investment and your position in the world. And because I grant you that position being Botswana of a a big market footprint, my ask is this. (laughs) And DBA has been pragmatic enough to realize that, you know, the arithmetic adds up and then you can move on because there's true value both ways. The challenge is when governments don't recognize that sometimes their argument is not backed up by any value at least in the eyes of the investor. And, and so I, I think that is really a very important um, point. You spoke of Australia. Australia uh, interests me because, of course, Australia, like Canada, is also a big mining country, both in terms of uh, big brands, uh, but also uh, the financial market, but also the internal market for, for commodities. But I remember that around 2011 plus or minus, uh, the Australian uh, government, though not successful at the time, wanted to introduce what was called the carbon tax. Uh, And I wonder whether in your view, something like uh, carbon taxation fits into the realm of resource nationalism come local content. It is interesting, and we are seeing a few examples of, of essentially carbon and emissions-related regulations being used as, as a way of doing local content. And, and you know, for example, there are exemptions in, in certain treaty, treaties and trade agreements about you know, allowing green energy production to, to be exempt from certain investor agreements. So I, I do think there is a potential for things like carbon taxes to be considered in the realm of, of uh, resource nationalism. I, I mean, I think carbon tax in general, is a, I'm, I'm generally, of course, for them because we drastically need to cut our emissions. But, um, you know, we, we do see different reasons for them being put in place in different places. I'm, I'm actually from Vancouver, British Columbia, and, and British Columbia gets credit for being the first, the, the, I, think, I believe it's the first jurisdiction in North America to put in a carbon tax. But, you know, to be honest, at the time, it was fairly obvious it was just a way of, of <laughs> shifting uh, corporate taxes to carbon taxes because they'd cut corporate taxes so high. So, you know, again, I think you have to be very careful at sort of looking at case by case um, analysis of, of, of anything to do with carbon emissions, re- reducing regulations, because, uh, you know, sometimes they are just, sometimes they are going to be local content regulations disguised as, as carbon taxes or, 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 or different regulations. So um, I think they have the potential, but, you know, of course, generally speaking, we, we should be supporting things like carbon taxes. 
Mm. So both Canada and for that matter, Australia have, of course, Aboriginal communities. And over the years, uh, the relationship between mining companies and for that matter, state and federal uh, governments and these communities has been uh, fairly uh, you know, volatile. And, but there has been great attempts to mitigate that tension. And, and I wanted to get a sense from you of whether or not you see these initiatives as fitting into the space of uh, resource nationalism or that they are different from what we are seeing in other developing countries and that perhaps they speak more to socioeconomic justice than uh, resource nationalism per se. I think that framing is correct. The socioeconomic justice is probably a, a more accurate way of framing that. And in fact, if you if you look at Canada, you would have lots of examples where indigenous communities um, demanding more of mining companies is effectively slowing the production of mines. Therefore, that's not really in in Canada as a whole's interest, at least purely economically. So, yeah, I, I don't think it's fair to lump them together. I, I think it is much more about you know sort of a regional you know hinterland versus the core kind of, of tension um and of course in canada and I, I know less about australia but but canada i mean i've got as a canadian myself nothing but 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 shame for how the, the status of indigenous communities uh, often in canada is i mean it's it's quite shameful in terms of the, the high poverty and the lack of access to drinking water so of, of course in in these cases their their demand for better benefits from mining is very much tied to essentially a lack of justice and a lack of public services and, 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 you know, high poverty rates. So I think it's much more accurate to look at in the way you've just said that, um, even if there are overlaps. True. So, um, you know, I, I was sort of thinking about what you were saying about uh, transition to green energy. Um, you know, the call is for countries to decarbonize the environment. That of course unleashes uh, new business opportunities for goods and services that are otherwise not part of the supply chain and the consumer and industrial market uh, you know, base. Do you think that if emerging market countries embrace uh, this transition to green energy in a really practical way, going back to ground zero, what do we have? What manufacturing base do we have? Do you think that in a way this might leapfrog local content, uh, you know, based industries better than the original effort in which there was no ground swell of, of any potential industrial development. It was just an inherent desire on the part of governments to uh, extract more value? Do, do you think the transition to green energy could be uh, the spark that is needed? I think there is great potential, but again, it goes back to the economics of the situation. I think, for example, the, you know, I just saw the other day an announcement from the, the Congolese government about wanting to make uh, a battery industry. This, th there is a great potential if, if um, you know, let's take let's take a, a if you had a country in in, in sub-Saharan Africa, and they have the you know the lithium or the cobalt or whatever that might be, 
they have the potential to make batteries, but the reality is they need the offtake market, right? They can't just make the batteries in, in the middle of the continent and, and hope that you know car producers in Sweden will 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 purchase from them because they've got such high standards and they're quite nervous about you know that that that, that those processes. So I think because of that, you know, you need, if you're going to do this, you're going to need the offtake. And so if you make a much wider industrial policy where, you know, for example, the Congo is going to make, uh, you know, uh, high speed, you know, rail and all sorts of other kinds of technologies that would use the batteries, that might actually work. And that's, you know, that that's very much if, if you look at in terms of forward linkages, that's the story of Japan. Japan doesn't have copper producing mines, but it has the second largest copper smelting uh, sector in the world, I believe, or at least it did in uh, until previously, because they had the offtake, they had the electronics industry, which purchased the, the, the refined copper. Um, and so that's the kind of thinking we need. You know, we can't just look at, at battery metals or, or any of these green technology uh, requiring metals as, as uh, on their own. You know, a single policy is not going to um, accomplish this. We need to be part of a much wider industrial strategy, which then in, builds in the the offtake for the uh, created minerals and the created processed minerals as well. So I, I, I think there is potential, but again, it goes back to understanding what are the what are the the, the what's the potential, um, what's the leverage points? You know, can we realistically make um, some of these services? Obviously, you know, high speed rail in the Congo is is not going to happen anytime soon. But you know, could high-speed rail in in South Africa happen, right? Could it, that that might be something to consider um, in the long term? Perhaps not at the current um, uh, state of, of of the economy, but generally speaking, if there's a potential to do that, that that may be a possibility. Um, but we should be very very careful about sort of simple solutions, you know, simple one standalone policies of export restrictions and various local content policies to to capitalize on the green transition. Mm. Yeah, it, it's interesting what you say, because I, I'm reminded also of uh, the Botswana diamond situation and the negotiations we had uh, when I worked for DPS. At the time, we focused on the, the conversation focused on cutting and polishing. But of course, that's just midstream. You have mm -hmm. uh, the jewelry manufacturing and the retail end. And uh, a few uh, critics of uh DBS and, and for that matter, the Botswana government argued that actually we should seek to advance right through the value chain. And, and not understanding that diamond jewelry is, is really part of the whole ecosystem of the mm -hmm. luxury commodity market, uh, that uh, very rarely do people just want to consume diamonds. People want to consume diamonds and handbags and uh, other luxury commodities. And so you are likely to find them in uh, Beverly Hills that Rodeo Drive or Bond in London or uh, for that matter, Fifth Avenue in New York. But you, you can't just create an island. It has to be part of a bigger ecosystem. So your description of Japan and uh, copper smelting and for that matter, steel mills mm -hmm. is exactly a function of that. It is because not only does Japan has the energy to fire these mills, which the Congo doesn't have, the energy mm -hmm. deficit is acute, but it has in its midst, you know, several consumer and industrial uh, brands ready to buy that copper and uh, build all sorts of electronic gadgetry. And, and, and it is this totality of the ecosystem that really makes for a, a successful uh, local content 
policy and mass. The irony of it, Jeff, isn't it? The Japanese don't call it local context. God knows what they call it. Uh, and so I often wonder, what's in a name, really? Mm -hmm. What's this, you know, why are we so obsessed with names? Uh, are we setting ourselves for a fault, uh, labeling things instead of uh, designing, conceptualizing, designing, and implementing things? Isn't this local content thing, resource nationalism here and there, you know, isn't, doesn't that detract from what the real substance of what we used to do, what, what we need to do? Absolutely. I, I really recommend an, a book called Kicking Away the Ladder by a Cambridge economist named Ha Jun Chang. And, and he does a very fantastic job of demonstrating that many of the policies which Western governments oppose developing countries using, you know, tariffs and, you know, stealing intellectual property and that kind of thing, were all heavily used by, by Canada, by, by Germany, by Britain. Um, and, it, you know, it, these are local content policies, right? I mean, a tariff is a local content policy in effect. And Canada built up its many of its sectors behind tariff walls. And, and so did Britain. And, you know, of course, once they were strong, they got rid of those walls because they didn't need them anymore. But, you know, it is very much an, a name, right? I mean, resource nationalism is you know, in an inherently negative way of, of portraying these these policies, I think. And local content policies is perhaps a, 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 a hyper-focused way of framing overall industrial policy. You know, I mean, I, I kind of, in some ways, prefer to say industrial policy is, is kind of what we need across the board. Um, and again, that, that goes back to this point that local content policy for, say, mining on its own is, is not adequate. You know, it needs to be part of a larger industrial strategy. So in, you know, in some ways, what we should be talking about is industrial strategy for a country with mining you know, local participation as one component of that. Um, so I think, you know, in, in some ways, local content policies, when we frame it that way, it, not only is it problematic, it also perhaps, you know, makes governments focus only on the one sector and not in the wider picture. Yes, but also it, you are giving your critics uh, something to use against you because uh, in and out, the unintended consequence of it is you create, you label yourself. Mm -hmm. The other is that uh, with that label, you inadvertently and incorrectly separate your, your, your behavior from others, even though to your point, it really isn't any different other than what you yourself have decided to call it. And therefore, uh, you, you give the sense that it's different from what other countries have done when in fact it isn't. And so, uh, you know, there's a tactical flaw there uh, when one thinks of it. But I, I was wondering, uh, uh, Jeff, you know, whether we agree or disagree, when one looks at the disagreement between big business in the matured uh, market governments like uh, Canada, like uh, Australia, we rarely see investors pick up and go. In the same way, for instance, that BHP, you know, four or so years ago, decided that Africa was too difficult a place to do business and simply left. So I was wondering, what does this tell us? Is it because African governments have an inherent ability to effectively lobby big business to stay in their uh, jurisdictions? Or is it that the companies are too invested in the other regions like Canada 
and uh, Australia, and therefore can not afford to simply walk away. What is it uh, that makes picking up and leaving apparently uh, relatively easier to do? I, I mean, I, again, I, I think it really is about things like the quality of the deposit and the money, the, the math, the math, right? I mean, a company, no matter what they say, will not leave um, a country if they're making significant profits, no matter what regulations are added, as long as those profits continue. So I think that is largely the picture. And, I, and, and again, I think this is where a lot of times industry does its, you know, doesn't help itself because you get certain companies who oppose every regulation and they say, we're going to leave. If you put that regulation in, the regulation comes, they don't leave. Then two years later, a new regulation comes and they say, we're going to leave. And then they don't leave. And then it does become, you know, the, the boy who cried regulation. And it does undermine the case where then governments start to think, well, every complaint about regulation is, is this sort of bad faith concern. Right. And then that makes them do problematic things. And I, you know, I certainly look at Zambia as an example where, industry has the government has made mistakes but i i think the industry has ratcheted up tension so high for so long by essentially being so obstinate that you have a you know a ratcheting effect where the industry is obstinate and then the government becomes obstinate uh in response and i think that is you know a lot of ways a lesson i would say is we need to understand that that you know resource nationalism or again whatever we want to call it is 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 real and and is is fair i mean you know the countries want more benefits and it's what how we react to that and trying to work with, with governments to in, instead of saying no regulations say you know better regulations which create value for, for both sides so uh, i think ultimately that's the main reason that country companies don't leave is if the math adds up and i i do think again this this point i made earlier about the difference between established mining sectors and oil and gas industries and not having one. If you do not have the sector already, that certainly puts you in a much different position. And you, you know, you, you are going to, to be very careful about being too aggressive with your local content regulations, because again, they can go somewhere else. But even there, if the company's already invested lots of money in a, you know, exploration and development, they're not likely just to leave um, tomorrow. Again, it comes back to this question of, of, of leverage. So, that's that's what I would say. Uh, I think overall. Mm. I mean, I think uh, on one level I agree with you. On another, I don't. I'll tell you where I don't uh, agree with you. Mm, I don't agree that uh, uh, if you have a high quality deposit, uh, companies won't walk away. A, a good example is uh, Guinea Conakry, which, as you know. Mm -hmm. has the world's uh, richest and largest undeveloped uh, iron mm -hmm. ore deposit. And, and I have been both to Guinea and to Australia in Pilbara and, and, and have a good sense of uh, the order of magnitude of iron ore mining and uh, the, the content, the grade of the ore in Guinea is just superb. Even if you just pick the stone, it feels like steel. It's, I've not experienced anything like that. Guinea also has, of course, uh, the world's uh, one of the world's largest high-grade bauxite. Re uh, BHP held a right to those grounds. They had a license. They walked away. I think why you are right is that if they haven't yet put boots on the ground, and in other words, sunk money, then of course, leaving is a lot easier. But also if there are options to find the ore, 
uh, elsewhere in the world, then they too, uh, you know, can make that that option. And I think there's the really the critical point you make is that do your maths, do your research, know what leverage you have, because sometimes you can't. Geology might favor you, uh, or seemingly favor you, but then when you look at that in the context of who else has what and what the options are that that investor has, you might find that your leverage certainly uh, diminishes. And and I think uh, when I think of resource nationalism, it is this failure. Mm -hmm. uh, to see the big picture and to look simply at yourself and assume that that is all that needs to be factored. And I think that's a grave error on the part of uh, many countries. Sadly, uh, Guinness iron ore remains mm -hmm. uh, undeveloped, at least, you know, the deposits about which I speak in Simandu. And that to me is a great tragedy, given uh, the economic needs of that country. I just want there's a parting shot to ask you, I guess it's really a view come philosophical question. I mean, in the end, when you look at Sub-Sahara, is it your sense that some of these resource nationalistic uh, policies, are they politically inspired or are they really genuine instruments for fostering mineral-based or petroleum-based economic development? Well, first, let me just quickly respond to your, your point. I mean, I agree 100%. When, you know, certainly when I say uh, having a great deposit is in the context of the, the larger picture. So, But I, I agree with you 100% on, on that point that they can walk away, um, even if, the, if that is. And you could use lithium in Bolivia as another example of you know amazing potential, but very little production. Um, in, in terms of um, your, your, la your last question, uh, I, I, I do fear that you know, political expediency is is a lot of the times what's driving these policies in the short term. Anyways, perhaps the well, the governments do eventually put put in the right policies after a long consultation process. But certainly, we are seeing more gut reaction kind of local content regulations um, being put least you know devised and drafted at first, and then they sometimes get changed afterwards. But I I, I do think there is a big concern about that. Um, and again, it goes back to this similar point of not having part of a, a, a wider picture. You know, Saudi Arabia has, you know, put in a lot of kind of recent regulations on, on its kind of, you know, emerging mining sector in the in recent years. But again, it's part of a larger industrial strategy with supply side measures and, you know, industrial parks and all, all sorts of, of things. Um, so it's a much more well thought out approach, whereas, you know, what you often see is uh, in sub-Saharan African countries, it does become more of a, you know, mining is a political issue and therefore the solution is a political, you know, is mining, right? And we need to put the local content regulations on mining. Um, but again, that's not how we make development. We make development by linking mining to other sectors and part of a much wider industrial strategy. So, you know, by its nature, you know, a, a standalone local content policy on one sector, it, you know, it is kind of politically motivated because it becomes sort of a um, a high a high stakes kind of, of political gamble to kind of a, appeal to to something that the public can latch on to. So yes, I, I I do fear that you're correct that in a lot of ways, a lot of the the, the regulations are are being posed in that context. Again, it's it, I'm it, we do need something. We we need some kind of nudge. But uh, I agree that if if political motivations in the short term are are what's driving the policy creation, it's very likely that we're going to end up with the wrong set of policies for, for both parties. That's lovely. Well, uh, Jeff, 
Uh, we've done well. How about <laughs> we leave it at that for now? And uh, thank you once again for uh, indulging the Sheila Karma Extractive podcast. I enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much. It's always really nice to talk to you.